Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, as always, and we are continuing our uh, trek through the book of Revelation, and we are looking at the end of times according to John as he writes this letter. On top of all of that, we are looking at uh, this eschatology from these different perspectives we've made it basically a, a whole year-long series that we've covered numerous topics, uh, tons of passages, and we continue our journey onward. And we are going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 18 today. Uh, I was looking at my notes as we kind of start to venture this way. 18 is a unique uh, book, so we're going to look at a couple things, or chapter, I should say. It's a I got some perspectives here that are coming out with Babylon falling. Uh, and so we're going to look at this uh, concept here uh, in these 24 verses. Uh, and then next week, we're going to look at chapter 19. Uh, and then we will have chapter 20 and then two chapters on 21. That should take us well to the end of August. And then we'll have a roundtable discussion that kind of encompasses all of this series discussing eschatology and the different views. And if uh, we can try to get some questions and things like that from uh, people who listen and hopes to answer it. I have a few people lined up uh, to kind of do a panel discussion. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope that we can get this uh, taken care of and, and recorded soon so we can have it on, on tap for the end of August. So before we really uh, start to unpack this particular chapter and uh, get to the meat, uh, a few highlighting points. Uh, we have started this week with our kind of soft kickoff, if you would, of our Tuesday sessions. Uh, this week, we did drop it on a Wednesday only because we recorded late Monday night. And uh, for Thomas's show, he had it slated to drop Wednesday, which I have no problems doing it on this one. So going forward, we're going to try to do two shows a month, I think, on Tuesdays. 
we'll just do a short kind of uh, maybe 25 or 30 minute episode. And the premise is really to try and cultivate uh, biblical life out, you know, into today's world. How can we as Christians interact with the climate and culture that we face today and not be lazy, complacent, and, uh, and negligent in our calls as Christians. And so we're going to dig into that. It's probably going to be some uncomfortable topics um, to take on for some people to listen to, but the call is urgent for us as Christians as we face this incredible new future ahead of us. And uh, I find it ever pressing on my heart to really address this on the show. So that is going to be the premise. Uh, we talked about biblical fatherhood, Thomas and I did uh, this past Wednesday for that episode. So go and listen to it and let us know your thoughts. And we uh, will probably come together a few more times and discuss various topics and dig into this. I will have guests hopefully on this series as I try to expand it and really uh, drive this element home in hopes that we kind of spur up the church, if you would, get it uh, moving again. We need men and women to pick up the call, pick up their cross, and do the work. Uh, especially here in the West, I find it to be complacency and laziness. Uh, we we have mega churches in every big city, and we have hundreds of churches across this country. And the sad reality is uh, most of the time, they're, uh, especially in the regular churches, they're half empty on Sunday mornings, if not a third or two thirds empty. And it's this small group of people that continuously come every Sunday. And yet we're missing this big generation of 20 to 50 year old people who have no regard for the word of God. And there's this big age gap in the churches. And this is even in big churches and mega churches and things like that, where you can discuss uh, sound theology, things like that, that probably don't even exist there. But the problem, you know, really boils down to this fact that we have lost the sense of urgency uh, that the early church and, and much of the reformers had uh, in terms of getting the, the call to the world that Christ is the only means to salvation. And, and whether or not you want to preach that he's coming back soon or that tomorrow's not even promised, any of those should put enough pressure onto our back uh, to go forward into this world and make disciples. That's the great commission from Matthew 28. So uh, I did a sermon on that a couple of weeks ago for our community and hopes that it would draw up and stir up some of the individuals in our small town to be more present in the church, to be more diligent in the church and to call and hold accountable those who don't come to church. And, you know, I have been putting that, it's been placed upon heavy on my back for the last couple of months now being in ministry. And so trying to find little ways to, you know, light that fire, if you would. So that's going to be a new segment. And I've got uh, some people working with me to hopes that we can kind of brand this a little bit. Um, and we'll do maybe some t-shirt runs. And we'll do uh, kind of a logo for it. It'll all fall under the Undying Light Ministries cap, but I really am looking for something very specific in this. And so I've got a couple people that I'm 
kind of picking their brains and, and working and collaborating with on this. So stay tuned. We're working on some really cool stuff with that. As well as I know, you know, I've made jokes with Thomas that my listening, my listeners have fallen off um, greatly, but I get it. This is a very tedious and taunting series. And uh, for most people, um, they would probably, you know, try and say, you know what, I'm not, you know, I'm not in that position yet to listen to it. And so they'll put it off and put it off and put it off. Um and, and I get it. It's difficult. It's a lot of content that I throw at you in an episode. And my, you know, my thanks go out to you as a listener for those who listen diligently. And even those who come back after taking breaks, you know, my heart is so warm because of you guys. And you're the reason I continue doing this show. And mainly a big thank you goes to my patrons for continuous support um, of this podcast. You guys have been um, just incredible. I love each and every one of you. I'm so thankful for you guys. And you guys have truly made Undying Light what it is today. And I hope to continue walking with you in this ministry uh, as we broaden it and dig deeper into the Word of God together. So you can join us. It's a dollar a month. We are listener supported. So everything that you uh, contribute to the show goes back into the show, uh, pays for the subscriptions, and it goes back into things like that. So, you know, I don't try to, you know, I don't make a profit and it's not about the money for me. It's about the community. And that's why I only charge a dollar and I only, um, and, and, and I give you everything within that. So I don't do tiers on Patreon. A lot of shows and podcasts and pages do tiers. You know, if you pay $5, you get a little bit more, you pay $10, you get some extra insider stuff. No, I, I give you everything. Um, like right now, I'm sharing my podcast from my school lectures on the gospel of Mark. So they get every single episode on that. I'm, they get all my sermon notes. They get any schoolwork that I do during the school season. Uh, they get any uh, other additional ministry work that I'm doing. We're doing a study on Galatians right now. So they get uh, a weekly commentary written on a passage in Galatians. We're in chapter three now. On that, they have special access to early show uh, notes, uh, show releases. They get exclusive uh, recordings and Zoom sessions. We do a Bible study that's exclusive to Undying Light. So we do a ton to give back into this community. And so literally for a dollar, you get so much because I don't, I can't sell you the gospel. All I can do is sell you my time. And for those who contribute to this ministry, I'm so blessed to have you and I can't thank you enough. And if you are interested, feel free to send me a DM. All the information uh, about me is in the show notes. You can reach out to me and we can have a conversation, Facebook or Instagram. You can send me an email. We'll talk through email too. whatever is your cup of tea. I know some, I know we got a lot of people um, who are on our discord server, which you would get access to. Uh, that aren't even on social media. And yet we still have conversations and I get their input and they contribute to the show. So a uh, lot of really neat things that go on in this. As I had mentioned, it's, you know, listener supported and you guys are what help drive the engine of this show. And so with that being said, we're going to um, spend some time looking at this concept of, you know, biblical lifehood 
in coming series. Uh, we're going to look at health and fitness, and we're going to look at some things that you know are really prevalent to the Christian nature, but that we often tend to ignore because we we get lost in ourselves thinking that we don't need to do these things. We don't need to take care of our bodies, our and our minds, and we neglect our spiritual and mental health. So we're going to be looking at some of that stuff, and I'll be talking through some of the things that I've done and am doing, and hopes to help you know rejuvenate my uh, mental and spiritual life. So that is coming up then, uh, as well as like I'd mentioned too. With this, we'll be doing probably an over an overhaul of merchandise. So we'll be rebranding and redoing shirts and uh, hats and mugs, things like that. So. We'll come up with a concept and produce that so that way if you're interested, you can join it there. Um, I'm also thinking about maybe really driving this to be a very special niche within the patron group. I don't know how we'll address it. I don't think we should do a separate group, but you know, we might do something that can really drive home uh, this teaching and, and provide unique context to it. And so it'll probably be patron only for some of the context. Um, and contents that I would produce outside of the show and outside of Instagram. So another another perk to joining us on uh, Patreon. Beyond that, you know, it's just the traditional Logos software spin. You can uh, get yourself a free copy of Logos, or you can buy a package and get a discount using my promo code. It's uh, logos.com forward slash undying light. And you can download Logos, and that's exactly what I'm using right now. I've got my commentaries pulled up on my screen. I've got my study books, and I've got my passage that we're going to read over here as well. So, And then on my other screen, I've got my um, Hindenburg uh, journalist that I've got open that records my software. So I've got both things running so I can monitor and watch everything. Uh, I'd love a third screen, but it's not practical for where I'm at, and two screens doesn't mean enough. So with all that and said, uh, let's dig into this text. We've got a lot to cover. I don't think we're going to read all of chapter 18. Um, I know I've read most of prior um, passages, but we've been doing them in shorter chops, and chapter 17 was a shorter one, but this is a bit longer of a chapter so we might take it in segments and we'll probably read kind of some of the chunks of it as we go along. Um, so I won't take the whole thing, but I'm going to read the first uh, eight verses for you. And here we go. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit and a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another angel, another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, 
She gave herself like a measure of torment and mourning since her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for the mighty, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her all wept and wail over her. When they see the smoke of her burning, they stand off far. They stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, the great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. And so this continues here uh, through the rest of this chapter. Uh, we have these. Um, descriptions of the ain't of the merchants of the earth weeping and mourning over her since no one buys their cargo anymore. And then it lists all of these things, these extravagant items. And, uh, and then we go <clears throat> into here further down into 18, where we get um, the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors um, distraught uh, over the destruction that is happening. What a great city. What city was great like this city? And they threw their heads down into the dust and wept and mourned. And then they cry out. Uh, and then in verse 21, we trans back, change back to uh, this mighty angel uh, taking up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, uh, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be no more. And then that continues until the end of the chapter. And so we have this kind of picture being painted um through 18 i think it's a fairly straightforward chapter uh, in regards to uh, what is really happening and i think we can really try and put this into proper context and understanding of what's really going on with babylon having fallen so the angel bearing this message of babylon's fall is remarkable even in the book of revelation standards john writes after this i saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory. This seems to be an angel we have not heard of or seen yet. And he is noted for his great authority and glorious brightness. His authority enables him to carry out his, his important mission. And his brightness reflects the glory of God into, shadow, into the shadowed and depraved earth. He sings a dirge over the fallen world, not a lament, but to taunt the defeated enemies of God. So... This is the whole premise going on here in uh, in chapter 18. The attitude of the opposition of worldly culture is not the only view in the Bible. Paul urges us to accept and appreciate good things wherever we may find them. Uh, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any ex excellence, if there is anything worth of worthy of praise, Think about these things as he writes in uh, Philippians 4, chapter eight, uh, verse 8, chapter 4. Christians should not be inhibited from enjoying the musical genius of Mozart, however ungodly the composer was. And we likewise fall short of our humanity if our hearts do not stir at the romance of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera, or our voices do not cheer a diving touchdown catch, or our fingers are not fervently turning pages in a brilliant mystery novel. I've come across some of these interesting 
aspects, you know, in the Christian walk and in these communities. And there's always the, the extremes that come out of it. And one of them is this idea of, you know, we can't partake at all in society. We, we have to be completely and you know, 100% separate. I mean, it's almost to the venture of living like the Amish, where they have very little interaction with the outside world. And I find that to be far extreme on one end, but then we go to this swing the pendulum to the other end and we say, well, you know, Christians can enjoy all of these things as long as their quote unquote conscience isn't stirred against it. And, and I find both of those to be dangerous, but I think if we come to an equal middle ground, we can truly see that there are things in this world that are truly marvelous and beautiful and we can partake in those and enjoy them. As Paul tells us, we can, as long as they find within the confines of, you know, being God honoring. And and I would even venture to say maybe, um, you know, somebody like Mozart who maybe not have been a Christian, you know, enjoy the music. You know, you, you're not going out and committing a heinous sin. But I would venture to say that if you're listening to uh, rap music today that's talking about nothing but drugs, sex and violence, might that might be a little push in the button there. Uh, I would venture to say we we have to draw the line in the sand somewhere. And, you know, I I find there are wonderful composers and musicians and uh, athletes and people like that around the world who are just out to put on a show. And we can enjoy that kind of thing. But we cannot get married into the world to where, you know, our our souls are essentially sold off into um, into the, the likings and the worshiping of the world. And so. This is the distinction that we must make as Christians and how we interact with the world. And I find for each of us, each of us, it is it is different. Some of us might be more inapt into getting into the world. Some of us might be more disconnected. Some of us might enjoy technology a little bit more and um, get into the utilization of technology. Some of us want to be completely disconnected and not have anything to do with it. Those are all well and fine. And and I think the Christian has the freedom within these confines to live and act in these things. So we get back to this dirge here. The fallen fallen is Babylon the Great. Uh, and we should take note here of what the world was before it fell. The world was made good by God and was precious to him in his own possession. Psalm 24.1. The angel's hostility is directed not at the physical earth, but the sinful worldly culture. What God hates is Babylon as a symbol of the idol worshiping, essentially perverse world system in rebellion to heaven. The world is not evil in itself, but only in rebellion and sin. The most virtuous atheist today, the most arguably seductive cultural harlot and the most cynical abortion doctor may all bear the stamp of the image of God. It is the, in this world that Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And, so even though these individuals are heinous by the eyes of mankind, we are still to love our enemies, even if they have rejected Christ and they will essentially bear the wrath of God that is coming. That is not for us to be uh, to, to hold a vengeance, essentially, because vengeance belongs to God. And so that, again, is another distinction we must make as Christians that. We can stand and protest against these things, sex, uh, sex trafficking, abortion, you know, the porn industry. Those things are 
uh, crippling our youth today, and we should be taking um, massive steps as a church to counter these things. And many churches do. But we also have to understand that it's not our fight to bring violence into the situation. And so we stand and preach Christ from our from where we can and allow the Holy Spirit to work as he has the will to work. But no, nonetheless, here, because of its wickedness, the glorious angel sings triumphantly, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This city repeats uh, this cry repeats the prophecy of Isaiah spoken over the original Babylon. And when he looked out ahead to its destruction of the Medo-Persian conqueror Cyrus, Isaiah wrote, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground, Isaiah 21.9. Just as Isaiah is looked out ahead to the coming of Cyrus, the angel looks ahead to the coming of Christ and sees the final overthrow of evil as an accomplished fact. When John wrote Revelation, the early, the earthly city of Babylon had been lying under the sands for centuries. Babylon that he writes is symbolizing the worldwide humanistic system that is hostile to God that rejects his word and refuses to accept the salvation that he offers through his son. The entire Babylonian world will fall to the sword of Christ's wrath and his return, just as the city of Babylon fell to Cyrus's mounted warriors. Now, I want to make another distinction here between these particular views of Babylon. Now, if you are a um, hyper-dispensationalist, premillennialist, and you're reading this text, um, and, and you might even subscribe to this if you're just a regular dispensationalist, um, they would think that Babylon is going to be a city that is essentially resurrected. Uh, it's going to be kind of the new focal point for world commerce at some point in the future. And so they think that all things are going to essentially come uh, in and out of the city. And so one of the things uh, people pointed to earlier in the century was maybe New York or Chicago being one of those points, uh, kind of hubs, if you would, for world commerce. New York was uh, a great one that many pointed to because of the world trade system and all the things that went on there with the stock market and such. Um, but then they look overseas and they look at other major cities around the world that could potentially be this Babylon. And so in this viewpoint, they are literally thinking that either the city is going to essentially be resurrected and be a focal point for the um, the one world government. And it will be a focal point for the one world religion and all commerce, e-commerce and whatever uh, is going on at that time will go through the city. It will be. Um, a dark and evil city. Sin will be prevalent everywhere. Um, it will be open, you know, with sex shops and prostitution and, you know, bars and, and debauchery. These, all these things that would be the instigation instigators to a sinful lifestyle. That is in that viewpoint. Um, and if you mentioned a few times, if you've read the Left Behind series, you'll you'll see how that is kind of implemented. Um, the authors wrote to where the city is kind of erected in the Middle East, and it's a city in of itself, and you know all sorts of evil, and that goes on there. Now, the other interpretation of this text is, as I just read a few moments ago, that this is not physically pointing back to the original Babylon that Isaiah wrote about. But in fact, it's an encompassing world system. 
It is the entire culture, the humanistic system as we see it today, uh, that is in complete rebellion against God. It is hostile to him. It rejects his word and refuses to accept salvation that he's offered, that he offers, God offers through his son. That is what I would venture into my interpretation and in saying, I'm not saying that either end is right or wrong, but I'm saying based upon how we've interpreted Revelation thus far, it only makes sense that Babylon is not going to be a physical city, but that this is, in fact, the downfall of the human world system, the world culture, the secular system before the return of Christ. So in calling forth Babylon's fall, the angel condemns the depravity of its conditions. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt of every unclean spirit, a haunt of every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Uh, this statement mirrors Isaiah's prophecy that foretold Babylon's complete desolation to the extent that wild animals will lie down and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Hyenas will cry in the towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Isaiah 13. Revelation takes the same imagery to its ultimate extreme, saying that the worldly Babylon will be haunted by demons, unclean spirits, and defiled beasts. Now, this imagery of corruption by violent and unclean animals symbolizes what happens in society when God is rejected. Doug Douglas Kelly points out that this is just nature abhors a vacuum. So does the spiritual condition of society when a culture turns back from God, the Holy Spirit, to some degree, is withdrawn, leaving a vacuum. Guess who rushes in to fill it? The evil one and those fallen created beings, former angels who are now demons, behind the idols of a godless culture are spiritual powers of evil who make that society a haunt of tortured spirits. And so we get this imagery given to us that Babylon <clears throat> is fallen. This world system has collapsed and this is what is happening here, that she's become a haunt for all of these things, demons, unclean spirits and unclean and detestable animals. Then he, you know, then the angel goes on and, and will clarify and, and write through how these nations have drunk of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immortality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of, uh, of her luxurious living. After the first angels rejoicing dirge for the fallen Babylon, another voice is heard from heaven uh, that either belongs to God or certainly represents God. This voice is directed to John and its readers who live in the very Babylon, uh, who, who live in ver the very Babylon under judgment. Their call is both simple and urgent. Come out of her, my people. That's verse four. Just as the previous angel quoted Isaiah's prophecy about Babylon's fall, this second voice cites Jeremiah's call for the people of Israel to depart from Babylon before its fall. Jeremiah five, uh, Jeremiah fifty-one. My apologies. In fact, this call for God's people to live separately from the world uh, permeates the Bible. When God chose Abraham, He commanded, "Go from your country." and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Paul similarly urges separation for the Christians writing, do not be equally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has the light with darkness. Again, I want to clarify this, these passages in right understanding of how Christians live with society. What I mentioned earlier with 
the pendulums swinging. If we go to one or the other extreme, we are bringing ourselves under a legalistic system of living. If we find ourselves understanding the justification by faith alone and that we are uh, forgiven of our sin and we have been made righteous and new in Christ, then we are given this freedom as Christians to live as we feel obligated to live. Now, this is going to put us into a position where as Christians, we will not want to partake in fellowship with the darkness, that you will do what you can to re- to separate yourself from the evil clasps of society. However, you must understand that you are a Christian, and therefore, if you are still breathing, you are still a sinner. You're just as much of a sinner as you are a saint, and therefore, you will continue to stumble and fall. But you don't walk hand in hand and and rejoice over lawlessness. In fact, you rejoice over righteousness. You don't partner with lawlessness. You don't have fellowship with darkness. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't spend your time uh, with people who have rejected God if you are not sharing the gospel with them. If you are partaking in this, then you are walking hand in hand with the world and not hand in hand with Christ. So this call from separation must be understood, as I mentioned, in light of the Bible's whole teaching. An important example is the letter that God sent through Jeremiah to the Jewish exiles sent to Babylon. The Lord, the Lord urged them to settle down in the midst of the pagans, build houses and live with them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. God further told the Jews to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will have, you will find your welfare in terms of uh, Nibora's Christ and culture. This passage supports the Christ above culture view in which the moral and cultural resources of God's kingdom are employed for the general aid of society. The exiles were not called to transform or somehow redeem pagan Babylon, but rather called to be good and loyal citizens, serving its king so long as no conflict arose in their obligations to God. And so, again, we come to this idea that living in society, we are to be good, loyal citizens, and we are to serve our government within the proper context. Once the government steps out of boundaries and starts to persecute Christians, we can either take a, take it to a righteous fight, which I would venture to push no on, um, or we can, you know, flee, if you would, to another country or location. Now, some people might disagree with me on that, and that's perfectly okay. I am one to not want to pick up a gun and go into a battle. That is not what I feel as a Christian I am called to do. I don't find it. Uh, violence or warfare to be justified in most cases. However, we have it justified oftentimes in scripture where God is giving specific people the uh, call to go in and and essentially eradicate a nation, especially as uh, the early writings in the nation of Israel and the conquest of all of that. But I'm saying in today's culture, there's no need for the Christians to, uh, essentially saddle up with violence. They need to find more peaceful manners of dealing with conflict in their lives. So we get uh, on through this portion here and we get the, to these uh, few verses here, verses six through eight, and it's beyond the call to come out of her sinful ways of the Babylonian world. We may make 
three more specific applications uh, which are tied here into these verses. First, since the sinful world is destined for judgment, Christians should not invest our ultimate dreams or seek our treasures in this world. Jesus taught, do not lay up your treasures on earth. We should not set our hearts on earthly things that are inherently unstable. Second, this judgment reveals God's hatred for the world's sinful priorities. Christians should increasingly take on an attitude that is pleasing to God and contrary to the spirit of the world. Some believers are reluctant to be different from the world because they fear being discovered as Christians. But what does this say about our commitment to the Lord? Seeing his response to Babylon's arrogance and sin, we should cultivate instead the holy humility that characterized Jesus and pleases our God. And finally, Christians are always to remember the fate in store for the ungodly world. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for the almighty God, the almighty Lord God who has judged her. And so we continue on our trudge here through this interesting chapter and we go on now to verses 9 through 24 and we get to this point where we will see these mourners lamenting and we encounter um their essentially their their agony their anger uh over the death or the fallen city of babylon when John wrote this book, the city of Babylon had long been destroyed, as we had mentioned. Babylon symbolized the imperial Rome, the most powerful and decadent city that dominated the first century Mediterranean world. Rome itself was symbolic, standing along with Babylon as a symbol of the satanic realm of secularism in idolatrous opposition to God. Her judgments is lamented in these verses by those who have feasted from her table. The first to lament Babylon's fall are the kings of the earth. These are the client princes who relied on the empire for their their prestige and power, including the rulers in the province of Asia, where John's churches are located. These rulers had embraced the corruption of Rome so as to gain power from her. They committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, and now they weep and wail over her as they see the smoke of her burning. The second mourners are the merchants who grieve over losing their great market of luxurious products. The merchants, the earth, weep and mourn over her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Paul Gardner writes, they see their whole livelihood and purpose for living disappearing before their eyes so that they are counted. So all that they had counted valuable is now gone. Historians describe the staggering amount of trade that flowed into Rome People compare today's Western decadence with that of ancient Rome, but there is really no comparison. The cities of Rome lived lives of spectacular wealth and stunning opulence. The riches of the ancient world were poured into the lap of Rome. And it really is against this background that we are not surprised at the wealthy cargo that merchants lament over being lost. Their cargoes of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, etc., 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 as verses 12 and 13 demonstrate, the general impression of wealthy extravagance is most important, but these categories merit comment. In addition to gold and silver and jewels, there are the costliest fabrics and most rare dyes so that the Romans could wear 
the latest and highest fashion. Rich woods and ivory supplied uh, the most costly furniture. Spices of all kinds provided flavor and scents. And their richest foods provided variety and sensual delight at the dining table. The list concludes with human slaves. The word slaves literally means bodies, showing how little regard for the Romans had for the dignity of human life. These quote-unquote souls were possessions to be used and misused at the whim of their wealthy owners. Dennis Johnson writes that the comrades in human flesh is the last of Babylon's imports, the cumulation of a decadent culture's ruthless pursuit of pleasure wherever the cost to others. And so we get this image painted to us here of these mourners, these people who are distraught, angry, upset, because they have essentially lost their livelihood. And yet they don't realize all of the, you know, they, they're looking more at a temporal perspective and not the eternal perspective. They're looking at things that they can tangibly hold on to their wealth within their hands and how quickly all of that can be stripped away from them. As we read that this happens all within a single day that the world system is essentially destroyed. Uh, the third group of mourners consists of the seafarers whose ships carried the cargoes, uh, the, carried the merchant's cargo, all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all of those who trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? The ship captains and their crews see from afar the smoke of the great burning city. They recall its former greatness and splendor. And they could hardly believe their eyes when they see the total ruin and thorough collapse of all their hopes and desires. They heap dust on their heads as a token of grief. Unlike the king's who sought power from Rome, the merchants who relished the, laver the luxurious living in Rome, the shipmasters care only for the money they made from Rome. Alas, alas, the great city where all who had ships at the sea grew rich by her wealth. There will be no further chance for them to get rich quick and make such lavish profits. Contrary to Jesus's advice on the Sermon of the Mount, where they had, uh, they had stored up their treasure on earth rather than in heaven, and the time had now come when their riches would be lost. In the judgment of, Babylon, of the Babylonian world system, those whose hearts are fixed on the things of the world will suffer total loss. This is great evidence to those who uh, waste their life away in pursuit of money, power, fame. Um, those who play uh, essentially gambling on the stock market. These individuals who venture to make money at whatever the expense is, these are the individuals that will continue to, or these are the, per, these are those that will uh, experience this loss. Notice the two things here about these laments. First, the mourners remained at a distance, not coming to the rescue of the, because of their fear. And they stood far off in fear of her torment. Their lament is entirely for themselves, what they are losing and not really for Babylon or her people. They do not. Uh, they do nothing to stretch out a hand of mercy or love. This demonstrates that the more worldly you are, the less real fellowship you enjoy in relationships. William Barclay notes this. It is one of the laws of life that if people place all their happiness in material things, they miss the greatest things of all, 
love and friendship with others. These mourners were people who, even before Babylonian fell, since they had abandoned the true riches and love of God and fellowship with their fellow man for the sake of the material riches. And so the co- the cost is great for these individuals. They continue to uh, lose and uh, but they're distraught not only not at the people being lost, but they're distraught over themselves and what they have lost. They are more angry at their material items being taken away from them than they are the actual people being punished and God's judgment coming upon them. So now we get to this wonderful little section here. Uh, these rejoicing in heaven, the laments of the kings, merchants, and seafarers is not the only perspective of the fall of Babylon. Revelation 18.20 interprets, uh, interrupts with the voice of, the, of John's angel interpreter, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and the apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And dramatizing Babylon's fall, John leaves us no leaves us in no doubt that this is God's doing. John shows us that uh, shows us this by adapting a scene from Jeremiah's ministry in Jeremiah fifty one sixty. The prophet wrote in that book all the judgments that would befall evil Babylon. Then he gave the book to one of the leading Jews who was going into exile in Babylon, so that God's judgment could be proclaimed when the people of God arrived there in chains. So then there was to tie a stone to the book and cast it uh, into the river Euphrates to symbolize that Babylon would sink and rise no more because God's cataclysmic judgment. Now, as John looks out at the end of history, when Babylon, the Babylonian world system will come under judgment, a mighty angel appears with a stone like a great millstone. And he throws that great stone into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and there will be found no more. The great millstone crashes into the water and sinks to the bottom of the deepest sea. This symbolizes the utter ruin of the world, of the evil world, which uh, per- perishes forever because of the idolatry and sin. God's curse is seen even more keenly here as the light is removed from fallen Babylon, and the light of the lamp will shine on you no more. Whereas God's promise to make his face shine upon his people and the blessing of grace from number 625, there is only darkness to those under his curse. Lights bathe the streets of wealthy Tyre, luxurious Babylon, and the glorious empire Rome, just as uh, garnish lamps assault the eyes of today's New York City and Las Vegas dwellers. Without light, who could enjoy or even notice the lavish wealth symbolized by gold and silver and precious jewels? Finally, Babylon will hear no more the voice of the bridegroom and bride. The blessings of love and, and merriment, the covenant bonds of human fidelity, and the voice of tender romance will be stilled in the great city. For even love, man's highest blessing will have ended for all of those co-signed to hell. And so we get into the last bits of this passage, and I think we'll uh, take a couple lessons here from Babylon's fall as we wrap up our show. We may conclude with three lessons from Babylon's judgment and fall. First is that the Christians must learn how to use the things of the world rightly, enjoying God's good gifts without falling into the world's idolatry. Just as the kings and merchants and seafarers stood far off from Babylon in fear, Christians must 
keep distance from the materialism that characterizes the Babylonian spirit. Christians are perfectly free, of course, to enjoy good things in the world and even appreciate the luxuries, so long as they do not uh, do so in gratitude to God and with generosity towards those in need. We will find, for instance, that when we see the radiant bride of Christ in Revelation 19 and uh, chapters 19 and 21, that she is clothed in fine linen and is adored with jewels. There's nothing drab about the glory of God's of Christ's people. The church's beauty actually excels that of the harlot Babylon. If we have money or high position or pleasant activities, let us be grateful to God for them and be stewards of them for God's work in the world. Let our true treasure always be God and his blessings in Christ. John warns us, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. Let us therefore not be proud in possessions or boastful in the things, uh, in worldly things, but be content like the Apostle Paul. He wrote, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus adds, where your treasures are, there your heart will also be. And the second lesson is that this that we should never doubt the certainty of God's judgment on the wicked. Long years after John recorded this vision, it seemed that many in Rome would. Ne- it seemed to many that Rome would never fall. And yet, that day came in AD 410 when they were overran and their city was burned, bringing an end to the empire. Many Christians were utterly dismayed in the insecurity in the moment, just as many Christians today tremble at the collapse of the Western society. But when the Christian leader Augustine of Hippo received the news about Rome's fall, he pointed out how inevitable the judgment was. There will be an end to every earthly kingdom. You are surprised that the world is losing its grip and the full of uh, pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse uh, to regain your youth in Christ who says to you, the world is passing away. The world is short of breath. Do not fear. Thy youth shall be renewed as an eagle. And finally, Christians should realize that in the midst of every uh, of this very world, with its history moving forward to certain judgment, Christ is building his church, but that will endure eternity and glory. Jesus promises that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. These judgments display God's sovereignty and power. Those uh, same mighty attributes ensure that the work he is doing now in the midst uh, through the gospel is certain to succeed. Knowing this, we labor in the world for eternity. We seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, as Jesus said, confident of all things that will be given to us with him. So those are some of the lessons that we can pull out of this particular chapter. And I think it plays tribute well to know that, as uh, Augustine had said, we can recognize that the world will lose and the, the world system will fall and we should not be uh, distraught or upset over the Western civilization crumbling because it's going to happen. So we get to chapter 19, which we will tackle next week. Um, now, as I mentioned, we've done this over um, seven parts and we've done three parts per each um, We've done three shows essentially for each part. Uh, we are wrapping up part six um, in the next couple of weeks. We have a few episodes left in the series, um, but we will do 
chapter 19 and then chapter 20. And then uh, we'll have 21 and 22. And that should put us, if I look at my calendar, uh, so that's 19, 20, 21, 22. So we'll do two, as, as I said, two episodes on chapter 22. Um, but the part, and we'll, I'll explain this a little bit more, the next part, essentially the next time break, uh, is actually halfway through chapter 21. So we might either do 21 into two parts or do 22 in two parts. I haven't really decided just yet, but we'll get there. So that's coming up. So stay tuned to the uh, end of this very, very long series. Uh, we've got a lot of things brewing for Undying Light listeners and a lot of new content coming your way. So uh, we're always trying to bring something new and fresh to your face and your ears and hopes that you enjoy this content. If you do, please leave us a review and share this on whatever social media platform you are on. And if you listen to us through Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is, please leave us a review and uh, share these episodes with your fellow Christian circles, churches, families. Uh, let's get the word out and share Christ with everybody. The time is short. Christ will return. And we do know that. We know the time has been short for 2,000 years, but our idea of short is not the idea of God, uh, of his timing. So we trudge on, we press on, we move forward, and we continue sharing Christ with the world. And that is what our obligations and duties of Christians as. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in, and I will see you all next week. God bless. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.